The sermon question today, we're not in a series, but uh, this is a topic I will talk, that we'll look at today and also carry through to, to next week as well, is uh, how should we understand the book of Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible? Uh, for many, and I keep hearing this, for many believers in Christ, this is a very puzzling book and a very confusing book. What do you do with the, uh, the dragon? What do you do with the horseman? Uh, what do you do with all of these uh, sort of strange and bizarre images throughout this book? And yet it is my belief, it is my conviction that the book was understandable. And it's not as complicated as maybe we think it might be. And indeed, when it was written to those seven churches that are identified in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, presumably it was fully understandable to those seven churches. And indeed, we have that line in 1-3 that says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, for the time is near. And we would assume that then it was understandable to those seven churches that are identified in chapter 2 and 3. Now, I want to acknowledge right up front that you probably didn't come with a burning question this morning about how should we understand the book of Revelation. Uh, it's probably not front and center as you found your way here this morning. But my invitation over these 30 minutes is that you would engage in this book and see this as an opportunity to perhaps gain some added understanding into this book. Uh, whenever I put my nose into the book of Revelation and camp out there for a while, uh, I sort of find myself moving in uh, just being more as an overcomer in my thinking. Uh, not only as an overcomer, but I would also use the word victorious uh, in my thinking and more inclined that way. And I use those two words quite intentionally because in the previous translation that I worked with, uh, New American Standard, and I believe the NIV before 2011, it uses the word to those who overcome. Uh, there is an appeal within Revelation to be overcomers. And then with the NIV 2011 uh, that came out, they changed that word, and the word now is victorious. To the one who is victorious. Um, the book of Revelation is good to be read at any time and beneficial at any time, but when the score of life for you might be two to nine to your disadvantage, Revelation is the book to read. So I trust that you'll engage and see this as an opportunity to get some idea of perhaps what this book is all about. So the uh, direction that we want to go today is we're going to do an overview of the whole book from chapter 1 to 22. And next week, Lord willing, we will do a thematic overview of the book of Revelation. Before we chap jump into chapter 1, uh, three comments or three observations about the type of literature this book is. It is a prophetic book. So there is prophecy. It is a prophecy by John as given to him by the Spirit of God. What is the prophetic word about things that are about to come? One is persecution, that there's going to be pushback to the people of God, and death is all over the pages of the book of Revelation. Two, that there is a day of justice coming. 
The cry of the book of Revelation is for where is justice in the midst of all of this loss? And to get this prophetic word that comes from John that there is a day of justice coming. And then three is a prophetic word. All of this is written against the backdrop of end times and the final judgment that comes from God. So it is a prophetic word. Second, it is an epistle. It is a letter. Indeed, you have those seven different letters that are written to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But the whole letter should be seen as an epistle that was given to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And not only to those seven churches, but all churches at all times and equally to us as well. It may well have been written or probably was written about 90-95 AD in the time of Domitian, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And the huge issue related to this issue of this matter of persecution was the emperor and the desire for the emperor to be recognized as the Lord and God. And people compelled to acknowledge the, the emperor as the Lord. And of course, Christians who are committed to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Lord, Lord of Lords and the King of Kings would not be able to do that. And then number three, all of these are really important, but this is apocalypse. Revelation is apocalyptic, a genre of literature common before and during the New Testament times. Apocalyptic literature was often used in times of upheaval, oppression, and persecution. And medieval and suffering, this type of literature would remind readers and our listeners that God with the righteous would prevail. <clears throat> and a key component to apocalyptic literature was the extensive use of symbolism with exaggerated pictures, visions, and sometimes even bizarre images. So there are writings beyond the book of Revelation where you get this type of literature. And we learn from that type of literature in, time, in terms of understanding apocalyptic literature. So, before we jump into chapter 1, two other introductory matters. With your bulletin, you have many of the verses related to the storyline of Revelation. And so I would invite you to follow along with that. I'm not going to reference all of them or read all of them. So that's one way in which you could follow this storyline. Or you have the option of, if you want, an open Bible in front of you, and I will try to reference all the verses that I will draw attention to, and kind of you'll see the context throughout the whole book as we walk through this. So, are we ready to do this? <clears throat> we're going from 1 to 22, and we're going to do this in about 20 or 25 minutes. So, let's hang on. No, I'm not going to race through this. Revelation 1 is a vision of Jesus Christ. That's the dominant piece within this. And related to that, we have words of assurance about Jesus Christ and words of assurance from Jesus Christ. So right from 1.5, we have this line, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The very reason why that was included right at the very beginning is that Jesus, the faithful witness, and the very word for witness that we get in the English comes from the Greek word, which is the word from which we get martyr from. So Jesus is the first witness, the first martyr in a sense. And not only that, he is this one firstborn from the dead. The implication is, as the book begins to unfold, as others would die from their faith as well, that there will be this resurrection that is implied and suggested by that. 
And not only that, but they get this word of assurance that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So it's not Domitian, the emperor of Rome. It is not Nero, the wicked emperor from the 60s. But it is Jesus who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then in chapter 1, we also get this very reassuring word from Jesus Christ, 117. Do not be afraid. They had cause to be afraid because of the persecution. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So that language there in chapter 1 is very intentional in conveying these words of assurance that people would be overcomers and persevere. Chapter 2 and 3, we've already alluded to that, but in chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven churches. They are acknowledged, they're commended, and in most cases also, unfortunately, they are rebuked. There are two churches that are not rebuked, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. Uh, but many of them received this rebuke, but they also received promises as well. It is to these churches that we get some indication of this suffering that is about to come, and then it's already there. So the church at Pergamum, there's acknowledgement that Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So they've already experienced some of this pushback from the world that they were living in. But he gets very explicit with the church in Smyrna. So 2.10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. And so then with this, and with all of the churches here, all seven churches, there's this appeal to be victorious, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious. And it really culminates when we come to the final church, Laodicea, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And I think one of the keys, at least for me, and I, I think for others as well, is that Uh, A big part of interpreting Revelation is that what happens in chapter 2 and 3, it needs to be connected with the rest of the book. And we can't divorce chapter 2 and 3 from the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5 are very intentional. And it's a throne room scene of God on his throne and Jesus Christ on his throne. Why? Why? We've just come through the nitty-gritty stuff. We're coming through, come through some of the warnings there. And then we're going to come into some of the additional nitty-gritty stuff about the persecution that is going to come. And there's this reminder that God is on his throne. So it's interesting. Of the 50 times, approximately 50 times that the word throne is used in the New Testament, about 40 of those times are right here in the book of Revelation. In other words, there's this bold statement being made up front that God in all his supremacy is on his throne. And he's not taken back by the impending suffering. He knows. There are no surprises. He cares. He's in charge. He does have the whole world in his hands, though circumstances might suggest otherwise. Then we go in chapter 6 into the seals. In the book of Revelation, there are six seals, there are six trumpets, and there are not six, there are seven seals, and there are seven trumpets, and then there are seven bowls of God's wrath. 
Seal number five is the clearest seal, a very clear statement where you have the slain and the martyrs who are in heaven under the altar of God. And they raise this question, which is really the critical question in eye judgment in terms of interpreting the book of Revelation. How long, sovereign, Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and you avenge our blood? These are among those who have lost their lives now in heaven, and they're raising this question about this justice matter before God. I would like to suggest that Revelation is a call and a cry for justice. Seal number six then follows right away with a picture of the judgment that will be there in the rest of the book. So seal number six, you get the, uh, you get the judgment that follows. And then you also have this question right at, that, at the end of seal number six. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? And then right away you get the answer in chapter seven. In chapter 7, it gives indication in 7.3, do not harm the land or the sea until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And those who do not come under the wrath of God and those who are safe are numbered at 144,000. 144,000, the people of God at all times, in all likelihood, took the number 12 tribes of the Old Testament, multiplied it by the 12 apostles for 144 times 1,000 is a perfect and complete number, and so you get 144,000. And then in chapter 7, it also gives indication that you really can't number how many people there really are who are a part of the people of God. Yet, in the midst of this, persecution is still possible. So 714 These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Given the clarities of seal number five and seal number six, the four horsemen, there's a picture of four horsemen as the first four seals. It's a picture of the conquest, the hunger, and the death coming to the people of God. These are expressions of the oppression with all hell breaking out against the people of God. And even this rider that comes in as the first rider on a white horse is a parody of Christ and a mimicking of Christ as he will come in on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19. So judgment is coming to the perpetrators of this injustice. And so we'll pick that up in the trumpets, but before we get into the trumpets, you have this picture in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 5. And one of the questions we can only imagine, people who are living in the world of persecution even today, they pray and they intercede and they call and they say, are our prayers making any difference? You get this picture in chapter 8, 3 to 5. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar He was given much incense to offer and with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightnings and an earthquake. And Eugene Peterson, some of you might be acquainted with that name, has written a commentary on the book of Revelation, and he picks up on this very picture right here, and he entitles his book with this picture really in mind, Reverse Thunder. It is the prayers of the people of God that sets into motion 
the judgment that we see in the book of Revelation. Chapter 8, we move to seven trumpets. The purpose of the trumpets in the Old Testament, largely to announce. And we get this announcement of the coming judgment against those who are the perpetrators of the injustices. But in chapter 8 and chapter 9, that judgment is limited. It's limited to a third. In other words, it is limited to a third largely because of the patience and compassion of God and the hope on the part of God that people will repent. And so there's a limitation on that judgment that comes. But when we get to the bowls of God's wrath, which comes next, it's wide open and full and complete, the judgment there. But even with the limitation that is there and the opportunity for repentance, we get indication in 921, the rest of mankind, they did not repent. And so the drama continues to unfold and the story unfolds. Chapter 10, we get the story of John by an angel being directed to eat a scroll, a small booklet. He eats the booklet, it's sweet in his mouth, but turns sour in his stomach. And the image there, the image is that the, good news, the gospel is good news. Yes, it is sweet in our mouths, but there's also an aspect of the gospel that is bad news. I mean, there's bad news talking about sin. There's bad news talking about judgment. And for any preacher who's acquainted with the bad news and who's aware of it and any modern-day prophet, there is a sense in which the bad news turns sour in one's stomach. And there's a reluctance to step into that. I mean, there's aspects of the book of Revelation that I'm quite delighted to relate to you today. And there's aspects of the book of Revelation as I'm up here. It is like sour milk in my stomach because of the realities reflected through this very book. And so that's, there's a, sort of this pause with the book and the acknowledgement with John the Apostle as he is wrestling with this image and, and these, uh, this revelation that is given to him. But the story goes on and you have the story of the two witnesses in chapter 11. And chapter 11 is really the witness, the ongoing witness and ministry of the church. And as they are involved in ministry, these two witnesses, it's given indication that those that might want to harm them are not able to do so. 11.5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes down from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Yet... Yet, when their appointed time for ministry is done, at least for these two witnesses, they are killed, and they become martyrs. And they are there, and the perpetrators of the injustice gloat over this reality for three and a half days. But then after the three and a half days, they are whisked up to heaven. And 11.12 indicates, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, and they went to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Can you imagine how encouraging 11, chapter, 11 of, uh, chapter 11 of Revelation is to those who are suffering persecution and who have lost loved ones? The image here is, yes, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ may die for their faith, but hang on, they're going to heaven. That's the image and the intent of chapter 11. 
Every martyred believer is assured of their final home in heaven. So much so, and already in chapter 11, we're not even at the end of the book, and chapter 11 breaks out with rejoicing because God reigns. And Handel, when he wrote his Messiah, he went to 11.15. We're not even, we're about halfway in the book. And he takes that line, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Well, who's behind all of this mess? Well, chapter 12 and 13 pauses and looks at that. And this is really the theological center of the book of Revelation 12 and 13. Satan is pictured in chapter 12 as the red dragon. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, prevents a unique perspective on the Christmas story. But ultimately, we have in chapter 12 the defeat of Satan. But Satan has capacity to play havoc with the people of God. So you have Revelation 12, 17, and the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. You know, that would be the same as in 1 Peter, where it says, you know, um, Satan is like a lion roaring, looking to, to devour some people. So that's really the, the thought that's there in Revelation chapter 12. But in the midst of that, we get this line that is probably the summary verse of Revelation, in terms of overcoming, persevering, staying with the stuff, being true, being faithful, enduring patiently with the, with the pushback of the world around us. Revelation 12, 11 is the summary line in some ways of the book of Revelation. They triumphed, the people of God. They triumphed. They're victorious. They're overcomers. They, over, they triumphed over him, over Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's it. 12.11. And that's the call that really comes to the believers of Christ today. Well, Satan is not working alone. He has two agents that are working with him that he deputizes, in a sense, the, uh, the, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Their agenda is explicit. The beast from the sea, 13.7. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And yet in all of this, 13.9-10, the people of God are recalled to remain faithful. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone goes into captivity, in the captivity they will go. And then it goes on to call for patient endurance. And then one of these beasts is identified as the number 666, which has, of course, spawned all kinds of interpretations. 666 is occupation, preoccupation with the book of Revelation. What does 666 stand for? And probably the most pro- plausible interpretation of this is that you would take that, or then take the name Nero, who was the emperor during the 60s, and you, brought, you, you assign numerical values to that, uh, most people would suggest that this is representative of Nero, that wicked and, uh, and evil emperor during the 60s who persecuted believers in Christ as well. Chapter 14, we get a reprieve. We get uh, fairly heavy chapters. But back in chapter 14, we're back in heaven. And anyway, there's reference to the 144,000. 
And the 144,000, all of them that were sealed in chapter 7, they're all now in heaven. And the implication is clear. Everyone makes it to heaven. Everyone who is sealed makes it ultimately to heaven. But there are exhortations in chapter 14. There's a warning in chapter 14. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their foreheads, uh, worshiping the emperor. That's what's at issue here. And then in 14.13, you have this amazing beatitude. Blessed, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Come the day of judgment, faithful believers will be part of God's harvest of the good, pictured in Revelation 14, and the wicked, the winepress of God's wrath, also in Revelation 14. Chapter 15 and 16. I said there are seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets that announce the, the judgment. And then when you get to the seven bowls of God's wrath, it is no longer an announcement, but it is full judgment of God. Whereas the seven trumpets were partial, the bowls are full and complete. There's no holding black back. The language is, uh, very, is very clear. God's judgment is decisive for the people refused to repent of what they did. And in a sense, you could almost end in part with the end of chapter 17, but the story goes on with some amplification. They get to chapter 17 and 18. You get an amplification of the last bowl of God's wrath, specifically against Babylon. Apocalyptic literature is marked by fluidity, So the beast of the sea takes on the identity of a city, Babylon, a long-standing foe of the people of God in the Old Testament. And Babylon represents the Roman Empire. Believers in the early church would have intuitively known this, and even if they didn't, the clues are there in these chapters. So 17.9, the seven heads or the seven hills on which the woman sits, this Babylon, this Rome, and Rome was built on a hill of seven, on seven different hills. Or in 1718, the woman you saw as the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Uh, there could have only been one city and one empire, and that would have been the Roman uh, Empire at that point in time. Uh, but it's the Roman Empire of 176 uh, that is responsible for the shedding uh, of or taking the lives of the people of God. Then as a part of this, in chapter 18, you have this prophetic word, and here you have John, the writer of Revelation, who is a nobody, banished on this island, and he, in this prophetic word, declares the destruction of Babylon, which is, which is Rome. And so here he declares this prophetic word, which ultimately comes to pass in 486 when the Roman Empire is destroyed. And so the prophecy comes true. This nobody, John, basically a prisoner, banished to this island, and the prophetic word comes true in 486, prompting then the breakout of the hallelujah section of the book of Revelation. And unfortunately, there was a division with, between the end of, obviously, chapter 18 and chapter 19. But 
All of those verses in the early part of chapter 19 flow right out of chapter 18. What's all the hallelujah about? What's all the celebration about? All the celebration is that Babylon is being judged. And judgment has come upon her. For she has slaughtered God's people at the end of chapter 18. Then chapter 19, you get this breakout of hallelujah. And then in chapter 19, verse 2, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Going back to the very question that we had in Revelation chapter 16, 6, uh, you know, how long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? But it's also about the return of Christ. All of this is played out against the backdrop of the return of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, you have the return of Jesus Christ coming on a white horse, and with that, judgment. You have both beasts that are thrown into the fire. These are the agents of Satan. And then Satan also thrown into the lake of fire. And you have the final judgment. So from the middle of chapter 19 right through to largely the end of chapter 20, you have the judgment of God and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as a part of that. And in the midst of that, we have an interlude of a thousand-year reign. Why? Uh, Largely, I would want to suggest, Martyrs are rewarded and honored for their faithfulness. So when you look at chapter 20, verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been martyred because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. A way to honor and recognize these who have been killed. And this is really in step with the last promise to the seven churches, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Much of the remainder of the book is about the second city, the new Jerusalem, uh, and this heaven and this new reality. And 21.4, there will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In that chapter, we're really given a glimpse into heaven <clears throat> from chapter 21.1 to 22.5. And then the final chapter is really one of exhortation for believers to stay true and committed. And that's the end of the story. Were you able to stay along with me? (laughs) So, what are some of the key takeaways from this book that can enable us to live victorious, overcomers, uh, using the very language in the book of Revelation? Uh, Very briefly, I'm going to suggest seven. And again, our circumstances are very different. We have no fear of going out that door and thinking that we might be killed later this afternoon because we're believers in Jesus Christ. But there are corners in the world where Revelation is a really critical book. Egypt, Pakistan. Pakistan, believers were just recently killed again. Iran, other countries. So, again, our circumstances are quite different. But there are truths here that speak to our world. That truths that can say, that we can identify, and we can say, I'm an overcomer. 
I'm victorious in life. Here they are, very briefly. Christ stands among us. Revelation 1, 2, and 3. He stands among us. He stands among the lampstands. Two, God is on his throne. Revelation 4 and 5. Three, the prayers of God's people, especially on matters of justice, are extremely effective. You get the prayers happening in heaven, and right away, there's a response from God. Four, there is an enemy, but Christ has prevailed over that enemy. Five, there is a day of justice and judgment coming. Six, there is a day of promise. It is the new Jerusalem. It is heaven. It gives us something to look forward to. And then number seven, Christ is coming. And when you look at through Revelation, not only is it Christ is coming with end times, but Christ is coming in the midst of our present circumstances as well. He is coming. So may we find the capacity to be overcomers, victorious in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.